Welcome to DeFi by Design, where we talk all things blockchain and cryptocurrency while striving to educate, empower, and enrich. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the DeFi by Design podcast. Excited that you're here and thank you. Uh, before we jump in, I just want to give you guys a quick couple words about our lovely sponsors who make this show possible. First, we have Metis Network. Right now, every layer two optimistic rollup uses a single sequencer to run their network. This creates a large security and decentralization risk. If that one sequencer goes down due to a malicious actor, seizure by outside authorities, or anything else, the results could be catastrophic. Soon, Metis will launch the first ever sequencer pool. By spreading sequencer duties across multiple parties, Metis will decentralize the most important function of a blockchain network, combine that with their network of block producers and validators, and Metis will become one of the first truly decentralized layer twos using a decentralized sequencer. These sequencers will be required to stake and lock a minimum of 20,000 Metis tokens, which effectively ensures that they will act with the network's best interest in mind. I'm pretty excited about this personally because during DevConnect, we listened to a lot of talks about decentralizing sequencers, and even Vitalik gave a talk about the roadmap to decentralized sequencers. The more that we can push this innovation forward, the more that we can push this ethos of decentralization forward, it makes the entire ecosystem better. So thank you, Metis, for supporting the rollup, and we look forward to seeing this come to fruition. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to episode 117 of DeFi by Design podcast. Today, we're going to 100x lower the cost of rollup transactions, and I couldn't be more bullish, boys. Look at that smile. I'm Prabal. I met Prabal out there in Istanbul, so did Rob. Had a, had a good time, so got a sick Avail shirt. I'm not wearing it, unfortunately, but I still got it in my suitcase. Haven't made it home yet. Uh, things pretty fresh. Rob, how, how you feeling? I'm doing good, man. I'm I'm feeling good. It's, uh, yeah, it's good to settle in after the conferences. I mean, the conferences are a whirlwind. Uh, kudos, Andy, been riding the momentum. Just got shot out of a cannon out of Istanbul and just hasn't been the same since, so uh we're we're pushing on all fronts learning so much about modularity um and we're definitely going to be going to be going through the modular stack today and i think just as, as we kind of like like start to get into it a little bit we can almost start to frame this mental model where like the stack concept originates from like the layer one layer two layer three and so on and so forth and it, it is very clear like the mental model is very 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 clearly a stack of these different technologies on top of one another. And then they all they all kind of flow data down to the base level where it settles on chain. Modularity blows this all up. It's like totally unpacking all of these components and just sifting them all throughout space, all over the universe. And then there's so many ways where we can connect. We can plug in, plug out different things, choose where we want to combine certain technologies for different flavors of an application or, or a blockchain or, or, you know, se several use cases from there. So Prabal, I'd love to start with, um, what your mental model is, where you, you view the general, like how you view this general space. What is your mental model? Yeah, I think, uh, the mental model stems from what we have seen till now, like the status quo, where we have seen that a lot of different, uh, a lot of different activities are happening on the base layer on a single layer. What that means is we are, you know, try very hard and for, for very long to kind of scale this, this one single layer to make it you know, compatible for doing a lot of these, uh, 
computation, a lot of these, uh, you know, bootstrapping of security and so on and so forth into a single monolithic layer. And then we realized that, you know, the monolithic world doesn't scale because you cannot, you cannot optimize all the parts of it without breaking uh, the, part, the, the main layer itself. Because it's monolithic, any part you want to change, you have to make a protocol layer change onto the base layer, which is completely invisible. Um, for example, if there are many, many new different ways that MEV can represent for the users, right? So there has been a lot of lot of novel work which has been done for, let's say, a mempool which is which is uh, secured by MPC, or there is a commit release mechanism on the mempool, and so on and so forth. All of this is great. A lot of research has been done, but most of them cannot be implemented on a monolithic design because you, at that point, have to change the entire mempool for the base layer, and that affects all the applications running on it. And you do not have a choice at that point because it's it's a single layer. Um, what modular and the entire part of roll-up centric roadmap that we have seen actually says is that you can mount in bits and pieces of it, put it off chain, and then push something very succinct on chain, right? And then the on-chain demands remain very, very minimal. The on the the base layer acts only as to so-called give the security, right? And a minimal things like data availability and settlement. Um, whereas, you know, everything else, the complete execution, the complete mempools, the ordering um, can be done completely off-chain. So that's what this entire shift in mental model kind of feels like. What that also enables is that individually, each one of these pieces can be optimized can be made to be custom. Uh, for example, simple things like, do you really need uh, the entire EVM architecture for your application-specific rollup? If the answer is yes, then that's great. You can just inherit that transaction structure, the state and storage structure, the you know trans state transaction function, and so on and so forth. But if not, you can now do custom states, custom transaction structure, customs you know, storage layouts and so on and so forth. So with what this essentially feels like, and sorry for the long-winded answer, but the entire mental model feels like, you know, how you would how you would start with a single layer, try to consolidate like but I write a code base, I start with something that just, just works. Something might not be broken into functions, things are all, you know, into a single main function which contains all of that code base. And then that that lets lets me get the work done right in the in the first iteration, but then as you want to make things more much better, more optimized, and so on, you take pieces of the code base, make it into functions, keep abstractions. You know, you you slowly slowly try to optimize bits and parts of it because then your code becomes overall more optimized, and that's what at least my mental model is like. Yeah, and I appreciate the long-winded answer because, frankly, up until three, four months ago, I, I was quite confused on what this even meant. I, I remember being at HCC, there was a modular summit, first, and there was like some other L2 event, and I was like, ah, that was back in July. I was like, ah, modular summit, who wants to go to that? Whatever, what does it even mean? And then now it's like the whole world is, the whole world, the whole crypto world's talking about it. And um, and I think that I'm, I'm still getting a lot of 
uh, you know, questions with regards to what is even the, the basic stack. So I, I'm, I'm glad that we've established your foundational view. And I think it's, again, in alignment with a lot of what the, the, the general consensus and thought processes are around the advantages. So now building off that, um, you know, and I'd like to deep dive into each layer, into DA, but just continuing to build off this foundational, uh, you know, kind of overlook. We now have this 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 idea in a lot of really smart builders' heads who've raised money with good teams and are building this tech. So now, what does this modular future based on this foundation look like six, 12, 18 months from now? And then how is that different from what it looks like today? And you're on mute, sir. Sorry. And uh, how it looks like today, especially let's talk about the Ethereum ecosystem, right? How it looks like is that whenever there is a lot of activity, um, the price activity becomes extremely expensive, right? It's, it gets very hard to use the chain because all the activity hits that same layer. Um, and the fact of the matter is that as and when we get more and more use cases, more and more applications, this is unsustainable. To be able to give, uh, you know, one transaction fee as tens of dollars to even spiking up to hundreds of dollars is, is not sustainable for, for a use case specific blockchain if we want to make blockchains mainstream. In the, in the modular world, what will happen is that, you know, this is this is going to become roll-up centric. What this means is all that execution will be completely taken off chain and be done with. Users will get sub-confirmations of that transaction acceptance. They would be happy with it. They will be formed of batches. And then the batches will only hit top the DA layers and the proofs will hit the settlement layers of the world, right? So uh, in that kind of world is the... Is, is where we will be able to see amortization of cost. Uh, not only it's about just the cost, it's also about the user experience, right? Now, uh, different layers have different block times, block finalities, and so on and so forth. So even for example, um, today as a user, you have to wait for like say 12 seconds for Ethereum blocks, and in one finality, you have to wait for 12 to 15 um, minutes of finality, right? So uh, in 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 this kind of world, depending on what kind of guarantees you need, you have to wait for different amounts of time. Uh, for example, if you want self-confirmation, you will get it in milliseconds. For example, I think Arbitrum today gives somewhere around you know, 500 milliseconds or maybe even lesser times of you know, transaction confirmation, which is great to have right, for a user. You just give it and it feels like a Web2 kind of an experience where you just submit a transaction, you get back a confirmation that it has been accepted. Um, but if you if you are maybe, you know, transferring a lot of funds, let's say I'm sending millions of dollars, then of course I wouldn't only, only, only do that on the transaction confirmation, the soft confirmation, right? You would want to have subjective finality or objective finality. In terms of subjective finality, you have to wait for this batch to hit the DNA, which then you know, and like encapsulate the ordering of the transactions. And after that, you, you might even want to wait for objective finality, which can be, you know, a few hours to a few days, depending on whether it's a, 
uh, whether it's ZK verified or optimistic constructor and so on and so forth. So uh, you see the options from the users increases a lot, right? So the experience changes a lot. The the abstractions and the optimizations and the customizations, they all change a lot. And that is what this entire roadmap is about, to be able to give different kind of experiences depending on the use cases uh, to, the, to the end user. Yeah, I've wrote a lot about, and, and I've got it here as GA was 100x cheaper transaction cost, which is something that I'm really excited about. I was at Epic Eat Infra Day in Istanbul, and the founder of Neil was there, of course, they're working on a DA layer. And, um, you know, he, I, I, I asked him, like, is, is this going to allow rollups that transactions that basically are unfathomable in costs to what is current? And he was like, yes, like, this is something that people aren't really understanding as far as how much lower this is actually going to cost. And then in, in addition to that, you spoke about this, this idea of confirmations and this idea of pre-confirmations. It, is, it a, is it correct that using a DA layer in, will actually increase the time to get a pre-confirmation of a transaction or is that not true? Like it'll slow, oh, I'm sorry. It'll make a pre-confirmation quicker rather than going through Ethereum as a DA layer or not. Um, the the main thing about modular is that there is no straight answer, which uh, which is sometimes not uh, kind of taken up nicely, right? But the fact of the matter is it depends. Uh, it depends because if you are using a centralized sequencer, the transaction confirmation times will not change at all, because your confirmation is going to come from the sequencer. The entire experience is going is going to remain the same. If you are thinking about you know, the confirmation coming from the DA layer, which is the subjective finality that I was talking about. The subjective finality will, might take longer, might take shorter. It might take shorter because, you know, you might, you might not be able to fit a big batch into one block of Ethereum, right? So when you're unable to fit bigger batches, you break it down into shorter batches and you push it onto Ethereum. Uh, which will keep on increasing the scene. We we see some of it today, but as as demand increases, we will keep on seeing this kind of trend. Whereas DA specific layers, they have the capacity to take in a lot a lot of bigger blocks. And then it might be longer because there are other constructions called base rollups. In base rollup constructions, you do not have a sequence, right? You directly send it to the DNA, and then depending on the DNA lock times and so on, it might take a bit longer, right? So all of that is based on orientation. Uh, is based on what kind of confirmations are you looking for? There, then there are very, very normal constructions which are coming up, which we will keep on seeing in the in the near future, things like shared sequences. So if you're thinking of a cross roll-up interaction, the kind of confirmations which a shared sequencer can give you is probably very, like orders of magnitude faster than what you could have done in any of the other configurations, right? Uh, but again, is that needed? Is there supplementary constructions which can allow it? Maybe yes, but that's that's there too for us to see, like for us to check it out when those kind of infra things come together and then only you will be able to see the benefits. But largely to answer your question in one word, the answer would be no, because Today, the status quo is centralized sequencers, and they just give soft confirmations from them. 
the DNA and the settlement layer is completely abstracted out from the user. Yeah, so for the sake of the conversation of abstracting away edge cases um, and also focusing on what is today, the, the big upside for using DA layers is to find this happy medium between security and decentralization whilst also lowering costs significantly for rollups. And then when it comes to the, 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 the speed, um, you know, this is something that is kind of a, a, a case by case specific basis. Now, Rob's got something, but I just want to add the last thing on to this one is, so if my confirmation times on Arbitrum and Optimism and various other modular rollups, I think you might have said like 600 milliseconds, let's call it 500 to 700. Solana is 200 milliseconds. The UX is great. When I onboard friends to Solana, they love it. Why, why would I even think about using a modular rollup if I can use Solana? Yeah, I think, uh, again, like every construction does trade-offs, right? So if someone is saying that there is, uh, like, there is no free lunch, right? So every construction makes trade-offs, and that's what we should appreciate as well. Uh, and that's why I don't want to say that, you know, don't use Solana or something like that, because if, if a user is happy with that experience and, and people are building, uh, like, very good use cases there, then of course it's a it's a thing thing to kind of study to understand what the trade-offs are to to kind of keep on using it because we all want more and more use cases in the blockchain ecosystem. We don't have enough of it, and if if uh, 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 someone like Solana can help us bring those use cases, then we shouldn't criticize it just for the just because we cannot uh, you know so-called compete with the block types or whatever. Right now, the the answer to that is verifiability, right? So. It's about the end user verifiability, which is which is something which is very close to the Ethereum ecosystem. And that's what we also want to do as far as we and you will see all of the other efforts in this in this community is towards the end user verifiability. Now, if uh, if you think about the uh, trade-offs there, uh, we want the end user to be able to verify whether the transaction where was done correctly and what. In a way, what we are trying to do in that regard is that we are enabling data sampling, which is a powerful construct which, in which users can themselves verify the data rather than relying on any blockchain that whether is available or not. And we are also kind of trying to do things like wallet level ZK verification. What that essentially means is, if you think of the end user experience and how we look into the world right now, um, or at least how we envision that the world will be, is that the users will actually get proofs of execution and will do sampling to get proof of data availability. With these two constructs, they can be extremely sure and self-verify that the transaction was done correctly and that it is included and it cannot be like, changed. So this is the kind of end-user verifiability that we want to give as part of what we are building in the DNA, but also what this will enable in terms of, you know, if someone is using, let's say, a, um, a ZK stack for, for for generating or for processing the transaction. So that's the kind of trade-offs that you are taking. Uh, it's about verifiability versus, you know, faster block times and things like that. But again, you will you will keep on seeing much much smaller block confirmation times. Like it will it will almost feel like a 
like a web to API call at some point in time, uh, because the sequencers can can do you know very very fast confirmations. Um, it is down to what what the trade offs are right now is that is it sustainable, right? Is it sustainable to keep on growing a chain at the same time keep on getting faster confirmation times, right? So for example, when I receive a transaction. Do I just give you a confirmation that it is accepted or do I process it and then give you a confirmation of it accepted? When I say I process it, how long do I take to process that transaction? That, if you are talking about an EVM-centric rollout, which has a lot of state bloat, then that can be a bit costly, right? Because it has a lot of a uh, lot of things to pull from the state, a lot of IO fetches, which are harder to optimize on. And then if you talk about custom state transmissions, and that's why I was mentioning that a bit earlier, we will keep on seeing that with custom state transitions with very, very lightweight app rollups, you will almost feel like a Web2 API call because all of that already happens in Web2 API calls as well. As soon as you make a call, it does some verification, some internal checks that it is direct, and then gives you a fast confirmation. Taking a quick commercial break here to tell you guys about our lovely sponsors. Right before we get back to this fascinating discussion, we have a message from our current sponsors. Here we go. I want to take a moment to introduce you to our sponsor, Premia Finance. Premia is a native options protocol that offers market-driven pricing and capital-efficient returns for traders and liquidity providers. With Premia, you can trade options on a variety of different crypto assets. What sets Premium apart is its unique pricing mechanism, which is based on the market's expectation of future volatility. This means that options prices are always in line with market conditions, which provides traders with the most fair and transparent pricing. Recently, Premium has just launched their Options Academy, where you can learn for free how to become a proficient options trader. Feel free to check it out at premium.finance, hedge your risks, or amplify your positions um, to earn more capital-efficient returns on Premium Finance. Thank you. And another exciting sponsor to introduce you is Plana Finance. I've recently been onboarded as an advisor for Plana Finance, which is one of the first self-custodial wallets to support account abstraction. With Plana Finance, you can revolutionize your crypto experience and take control of your assets like never before. Say goodbye to the hassle of managing multiple wallets. Hello to a seamless, user-friendly experience. Plana Finance allows you to easily manage your assets, swap tokens, and earn rewards all in one place on your mobile phone. They have an app in the Apple App Store as well as in the Google Play Store. Uh, with Plana Finance's self-custodial wallet, you hold the keys to your assets, ensuring the highest level of security and privacy. With tons of cool features like gasless trading, um, interesting yield competitions, and cool NFTs, there's an amazing amount of effort going into building this app that already has tens of thousands of users. So what are you waiting for? Download Planet Finance today and experience the future of crypto wallets. And uh, these are all trade-offs that builders are making like as they build these rollups. Um, and you mentioned that you're you're building a veil for user verifiability. The reason that, that you prioritize user verifiability sounds like something that I heard all the way back from Satoshi's white paper about people running a full note. Um, so I, I think that's a very noble cause and, uh, it, it is important because we've seen like, we, we've seen why, uh, like not your keys, not your coins, why that holds up. Is it, and I, I, I take it that the data that is going through each user's transaction is very 
very similar and core to the to the like native experience about uh, of them running this node. Um, so they're they're not running a full node in these cases, but they are processing the data themselves. Could you can you kind of like describe why data availability is important? Like at a first principles level, like the user verifiability that you're enabling, what does that enable for the end user? Yeah, yeah. So on that, I think you you made a very good reference to the to the Bitcoin paper. And let me just try to, you know, try to talk a little bit about what that enabled and what we are enabling. Because it's not a apples to apples comparison, and that's why I want to clearly state what are what the value prop is. So on a Bitcoin kind of a node, or even in Ethereum, uh, the chains are actually doing execution, right? So you know the entire world computer vision of of Ethereum that was there. So essentially, you can think of it as as like a as like an execution machine which you can trust, so to say, right? Because it is secured by the crypto economics of Ethereum's validator set. Um, in that kind of a world, you have to run a full node to know whether the execution was done correctly. Even if you are an end user, what you do is you do not rely on the two by three plus of Ethereum or the fifty-one percent, fifty-one percent of Bitcoin. You basically run a full node to know whether they did their job correctly. That's the kind of verifiability I'm talking about, right? So that's why you have to run a full node to know whether it was processed correctly. If, and then there are concepts like social consensus and social thoughts, right? Even if they collude, even if two by three plus collutes and actually processes the wrong transaction, actually, your, you, your full node will actually fork off. It will not accept that block. It will not accept that block just because it has enough attestations from the validators. That's the power of, of these constructions. In a data availability focused chain, what we want to give is that we want to give the ability to the light clients to verify data availability. Uh, the, mind you that the core focus of uh, execution-based chain, like Ethereum is doing the execution. For, for on It's only about data availability. And we want the light clients to be able to verify data availability without relying on the 2 by 3 plus of our chain. And that's the value value that we want to add to this system. Now, what that collectively means is that as a user, you, as I mentioned, you need two different things. You need executional correctness and you need data availability. On the data availability front, we are allowing light clients to, to do extremely cheap uh, data availability sampling, only perform like let's say 15 to 30 data samples, check it for correctness, and then be very sure that the data is actually available. We have a web page which can do it on a mobile browser, right? So that's how easy it is to be able to actually do data with the sampling. And on top of that, all you have to do is verify your ZK proof. A ZK proof, depending on what kind of proof systems and so on, might take about 60 seconds, 60 milliseconds, sorry, to kind of verify, right? And you can understand the power of this construction. Like in order of milliseconds, you not only know that the execution was done correctly, but also the data was available. This is a big shift from, I think the AI is also understanding that I'm saying it's right, but uh, this is a big shift from 
crypto economically driven chains to cryptographically driven chains, right? So in in essence, you had chains which were which were secured by crypto economics because you had to rely on the two by three plus in order to do it correctly, or you have to run a full node to verify. Now you are just relying on the two by three plus on ordering. And the rest, everything you can verify on your own. You can verify the data availability, but you can also verify the execution correctness. Yeah, and and the our, our audience probably already knows this, but the reason that it's so, so quick to check the ZK proofs and why this, this cryptographic verification is possible is because ZK proofs are very, there's no, they're, it's almost impossible to come up with the solution, but once you have the solution, it's it's very easy to check and make sure that the solution is correct. So that means that it's almost impossible, right, to make that that uh, proof. But once you have it, uh, you can do it in sixty milliseconds. You can check that. You can verify that proof is correct. Um, I would okay. Yeah. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. I would like to frame it a bit differently okay. and say that. Once you do an execution, you basically want to create a proof of correct execution. Making the proof is somewhat very hard, right? So what you do is you do a lot of this, uh, I'm not going to the ZK cryptography side of it, but basically depending on start smart, you create those circuits or the AI representation and so on and so forth. You basically allow the prover to do a lot of work. After doing the lot of work, you then give a succinct proof to the verifier, right? And then I'm saying ZKP, and basically I'm abusing the terminology. It's a succinct uh, proof and so on, as well. it's a snark, things like that. But again, I'm not going into all of that. The user can use that succinct proof to verify the execution. Exactly. The complete execution can be verified. Yeah, got it. Okay. okay. Again, and then, I'm sitting there. Yep. Go ahead. Uh, what one step further, and and then yeah, I, I'm sure Andy's jumping at bite at it. So so then we get into data availability sampling, and could you talk us? And I heard one of Vitalik's talks at Istanbul, and he was all over this data availability and data availability sampling. He described like like one dimensional sampling and then two dimensional sampling. And how these were a couple different methods, and I'm sure there's trade-offs for using different methods of sampling. Could you describe like once once we understand, you know, the, this uh, user verification, how how is data availability sampling related, and then why might someone choose to go with this one-dimensional approach versus this two-dimensional approach? Yep, I think it's a it's an interesting topic to kind of discuss and thanks for asking this kind of questions. Um, so essentially, one of the powers of data, which compute doesn't have, in is the ability to be able to efficiently sample it. Now, what I mean by that is, when I take up, take some data, I can be, I can erasure encode it. I can essentially create redundancy in that data in order to make it extremely hard for someone to hide parts of it. And I, I remember the I'd like to give, which might not be a perfect analogy, is that if you had compact disks, I'm probably sure that you guys have access to it. I don't know how many of your listeners have uh, used it, but if you have compact disks and there was a scratch on top, 
you could still play the video or the audio file which it contained, right? And the ability for, to, for that to happen is because well, this was erasure coded. So there was a lot of redundancy in place so that even if bits of bits and parts of it were missing, the rest of like the computer can actually take in the missing parts and reconstruct it. Right? We are using this in the flip side. In the flip side because we are now making it harder for someone to suppress data. Now mind you that if someone was able to suppress data, then all of this roll-up that we are talking about, their security, with usability or actual security, depending on how you define it, actually completely falls apart. If you are able to hide parts of it, then in an optimistic design, you can't even construct a fraud proof. So it completely breaks security. Even in a ZKP kind of world, like you know, you're creating validity proofs and so on, if you have the data kind of messing, then your liveness gets compromised. So users' accounts might get frozen and so on and so forth. And that's why we have the data availability, the data availability constructions where we add redundancy to this data. We add redundancy so that it becomes very hard for someone to actually hide parts of it. Now comes the one-dimensional nature versus the two-dimensional nature. Like how you actually construct this data availability um, block, right? The, the block of data. Now, in one dimensional, again, depending on what kind of construction that you use, whether you use a callable commitment-based like we use or a house-based like some, some others use, there are different ways in which the data remains secure. Um, in a polynomial commitment-based scheme, we are essentially making trade-offs. The trade-offs are how long does it take to create a commitment, how long does it take to, to generate an opening, and how long does it take to verify an opening. What I mean by opening are the sample proofs. So essentially, when you, when you ask for a sample, you essentially choose a small section of the entire data and say that, give me a cryptographic proof that this belongs to the commitment that you gave previously. And then the network has to generate that proof and then give you the proof. You then have to verify the proof. Right? So this is this is one, one angle to it. The second is, how much redundancy are you adding? How easy is it becoming for someone to verify whether the original data was available or not? How many samples do I need to do for us, for me to be able to get a very high confidence that the actual data is available? These are the kind of trade-offs that you are making. There are some other trade-offs in some other constructions. Like for example, if you are a fault-proof secured system, then essentially if you create, like how big is your fraud proof? Is your fraud proof efficiently verifiable by the light client? You cannot expect a fraud proof to be so hard to check that it essentially needs a full node to run, that it completely defeats the purpose of creating a light client, right? So in essence, what I'm trying to say is all the construction categories, kind of parameters and the construction, the, the design is, is, a, is a big trade-off on how much verifiability you want to give, how much of it is being offloaded to the generator of the block, the block, the block production engine that is, how much of that is being pushed on to the end user to be able to verify and the proof sizes and so on and so forth. So 
I don't know whether I was able to capture all of it, but um, hopefully that gives some ideas. Yeah, it, yeah. Essentially, um, based on the on the size um, and, and the level of, I would assume the level of security needed um, by this specific use case. You know, one can assume for something that's not super financially related, you could use you know a, a potentially a smaller or a less sophisticated system, but something with that has a lot of at stake something a bit more um you know rigorous that is that kind of dictates the the design choice of the type of data delivery simply which you would execute but but it also this the, the amount of data also has to be uh basically it has to fit like a lego piece in a sense to be able to actually be operated by light clients so that they could actually you know just do their job which which is what they do best which is instead of spending a ton and ton of uh, basically economic value on verification, we're able to cryptographically prove that based on these randomized uh, proofs that this that this entire blob of data, for lack of a better term, is, is accurate. And I'm starting to realize a lot of this modular blockchain stuff, especially with DA, it's about not giving into the typical trade-offs that would come with just using Ethereum as your, um, as your DA layer, which comes with a lot of costs. But you get that you know really high level of security. But it's finding where you can kind of mitigate the trade-off of security using something like a light client, cryptographically proven, um, proven blobs of data for that for for the DA layer. But then also then by doing that, you get that exponentially lower cost on the on the flip side. So it's almost like we're like reshaping trade-offs here in a way where where the, we we're trying to find the exact right formula to make it. Uh, the best of both worlds. Yeah, that is true. And I think uh, it has to be understood that Ethereum is by themselves in a DA-centric roadmap, right? So they also want in its final shape and form want to be a DA there. And that is that is the trend that you will keep on seeing for many base layers. You have started seeing all many, many N1s or at least one or two of these N1s trying to be a DNA because you will keep on seeing this trend. N1s will either start becoming N2s, you have already started seeing that, and L1s start trying to become data Because in order for a, for a base layer to be able to scale, they have to be a DNA because the DA is the only thing that scales. Compute doesn't scale in a similar manner. So that's the kind of trade-off that you will keep on seeing. On the other hand, like it's very important to kind of understand where the cost reduction comes from. It should be very clear that this is not a old and one kind of a thesis, right? That, you know, I had Ethereum, I create a clone of Ethereum. Of course, the clone of Ethereum is going to be cheaper. So just use me because I'm cheaper. But you have not, not you don't have activity. Once you have activity, you become the exactly the same amount of cost that Ethereum gives you, right? So there's a lot of thesis like that. And I want to I want to make it that clear because often people mistake it like that. Right? The the actual cost optimizations comes from the actual code base. In if you make a system optimized for a specific job, of course it will be more performant and hence it will be cheaper. Ethereum started off with a very computation centric roadmap. And only now it is trying to shift towards a DA-centric roadmap. Because it is inefficient for handling DA, you are seeing today like $1,300 to $1,600 or even beyond for a single NB of core data. 
and that is because you are you are that does not optimized for the and avail is cheaper not because it doesn't have activity of course it's not in production so i cannot talk about actual numbers and and transaction call that would be foolish for me to do but it will probably be orders of magnitude cheaper because it's orders of magnitude more efficient at handling D. Right? So that is a clear demarcation that I want to make so that it becomes very clear to the end user that what this thesis looks like, that we are a scalable DNA. And the other thing which people fail to understand is that the superpower of DA is that it is able to scale to a bigger block if the demand increases. That's that's almost never possible in a computation centric world. So for example, if I see that my, in, in a typical blockchain, if I see that my blocks are getting filled up, I cannot double my space because to double the amount of computation, I need double the amount of resources for the validators. Of course, we have seen those kind of chains where validators are extremely beefed up in order to give high TPS, high numbers, and that's okay. That's also okay. Because who am I to make that trade-off if that's a, that's a utilize, utilizable chain which has a value prop by itself? But what I'm trying to say here is that DNA layers can actually make their blocks bigger without incurring a double cost on the on the validators because the variability depends on the amount of light clients and the amount of utility. If the utility increases, that that's more people are using it then more light clients will run, and when more light clients run, then then you can have bigger blocks. And that's extremely novel in this use case, which none of the other kind of you know monolithic chains can give me. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, that that was well over our head with regards to the differences between computational focused chains versus data chains. But that actually makes it much more understandable as to like why like something like a you know, a, a, just simple like a uh, chain, like a, like an app chain on Cosmos or a, or even some of these other, you know, potential DA layers are able to then scale effectively. You're, what, what you're saying is that you can't just spin up an, another chain that has no activity and be like, look at me. And this has been something that I've been focused on when in, in my writings recently, which has been the value accrual thesis for this work. So, so, so we've been talking about a lot and I'm I, I'm very bullish on DA because of all of this uh, this last ten minutes of conversation. But one thing that's interesting is this this transition from Ethereum with computational heavy uh, roadmap to now a data focused uh, roadmap. And I feel that it comes out of fear. Why do I feel that it comes out of fear? Because I feel like Ethereum is somewhat threatened by the modular thesis because of the the removal of its importance at the DA and at the execution layer. I find it hard to refute Ethereum as the main settlement layer. I think that Ethereum-based rollups at a settlement level, it's hard to argue that there's XYZ L1 that can be better, and perhaps you have an answer for that. But is is there a, is there a sense or a smell in the air that the modular thesis, you know, replacing EVM or using alternative VMs, as well as using alternative DAs, is a, is a could be a problem for the speculative or perhaps just for the the value accrual of Ethereum in the future and perhaps some of that value which may accrue uh, could accrue to these modulators. I'm kind of setting you up here, but this is something that I've been kind of thinking about. Um, I think there are two ways to answer this, right? And I will try to be 
politically neutral here by mentioning both these use cases, both the both the ways. And I and I truly believe that there are both sides to the story, right? On one side is the dominance of EVM. The dominance of EVM is is pretty clear right now. But my bet is that it will be broken, not because EVM is not good, but because there are, there will be use cases which can move away from EVM and will be able to thrive. EVM doesn't allow all kinds of operations that uh, a rollup would want or an application would want. And we are already seeing that in, as part of our exploration team, we are trying out different use cases which were not possible in an EVM-centric world. And we are very bullish on the app-specific rollup kind of thesis, right? Where we believe that people are going to, you know, run a lot of these applications. Many of them will be custom. Many of them will inherit the best of many, many worlds which we have seen. Uh, you have seen things like Aptos and so on. You have seen Solana and SVM. We have, we have seen EVM, but we have also seen things like risk zero based VMs, which are like just ZK verified of any state transmission function and so on and so forth. And there, there are many good players which are coming in, which are making really good headways in terms of like this pool, right? Which has a very novel structure in terms of the virtual machine and so on and so forth. So that is something that we need to keep on seeing for the domination of Ethereum in terms of the Ethereum virtual machine is probably at risk. And yes, there might be a fear that other things will take over and this, but that doesn't mean anything for the Ethereum because Ethereum wants to move away from the execution layer. And EVM is just the style of execution there. The second thing is the Ethereum user or the liquidity or the value base, right? So Ethereum is already looking to be ultrasound money. And, and I don't think that that is at risk because Ethereum still points to be the settlement layer, which means that it will be the value layer, right? So in that kind of positioning, I don't think it's at risk at this point in time, at least. I don't know what how things will pad out in crypto. It's very hard to determine kind of, or at least predict future even. But that part, I'm not very sure. So if someone is worried that Ethereum is losing its position in terms of DA, yes, but he has a DA-centric roadmap. Yeah, before 844 is coming, after that, the dang sharding proposal is coming, so they have a clear roadmap towards uh, a data identity kind of solution. Um, they are, are still going to be the dominant settlement layer, at least for the foreseeable future, as, as I see it at least. And then there are EVM-centric, like the execution engine, which has been a lot debated a lot, right, till now. And those are the kind of things where there is a risk, but that's a good thing because innovations are going to come in, new things are going to come in, and that's how we will we will keep on um, going ahead. But Ethereum has already talked about not execution scaling. So all of this just adds to its own theater. I think the, uh, it's a spicy take, and it's probably 30 years too early. I think the only L1 that could overtake or dethrone Ethereum settlement is Bitcoin because the cost of corruption is higher. But we'll say, we'll, I mean, go ahead if you have thoughts. No, I think, I think it's, it's uh, like 
again, as I keep on saying that we have to understand, like what you said is absolutely correct, right? That the cost of corruption, right? So at the end of the day, it will come down to cost of corruption. But what is it that you are corrupting? Also, the definitions will change. So Bitcoin, Ethereum, they have actually shown us the way, right? The Bitcoin has shown us the way how to even use blockchain, right? So, I mean, I still kind of sometimes open up the Bitcoin paper just to kind of, you know, refresh my memory that we shouldn't forget how, how distinctive and how novel that entire paper was. And then Ethereum showed us that you can do so much more from this entire technology. So again, that is a huge kind of, you know, headway that we have made from the two. Um, but when it comes to technology, the only thing which we have to go on and do is that keep on understanding the notional changes that we are seeing as things change around us. And for the cost of corruption right now, it's huge, right? So on, on Bitcoin, it's, it's huge. On Ethereum, that is huge. And that's great too. That's great to know. But there will be other constructions where the where the act of corruption is not has limited impact, I would say. So, for example, like if you if you today completely reorder, there's a lot of user value at risk. So even in DNAs, the corruption can can be extremely extremely dangerous, right? But at the same time, just because you can corrupt the chain doesn't mean that all the exchanges of the world will also accept it and so on. And I don't, I'm not a very big fan of, you know, whatever I cannot handle the protocol, let's throw it down to social consensus, that kind of a world. But as long as my protocol guarantees are incentive compatible, it's very hard to corrupt a chain. And as long as we continue to do that, then we would have a very, very secure system because most of the security will come from cryptographic and the less reliance will go on to crypto economy. Yeah, that was what you were saying earlier. It's a shift. Modular blockchains, they bring a shift from economic security to cryptographic security, which is, which is, which is very interesting. Um, but I can't help myself because I'm really curious about the value accrual in the system. So let's forget Ethereum. Now we're looking at stack. And uh, the, the, the typical stack is, you know, DA, VMs, and settlement. So forget the settlement layer for now. We've got DA and we've got VMs. I think there's, I think that stack is expanded in first half of 2024 to DA, VMs, interop, and sequencing, and then perhaps more. You're shaking your head. So let's start with, with the first two, perhaps. How are we thinking about the value accrual here for each player in, in, the, in the stack? I think... You hit a very interesting point is that the value accrual needs to be extremely well understood in order for each of these modules to be self-sustaining, right? Um, there are different trade-offs there, and I keep using the word trade-offs as if to evade questions, but really, I don't want to use it that way. But let's think of specific parts. Let's say that you have a sequencer, right? A sequencer is extremely valuable business because it can capture MEV. Now, that kind of thing probably no one talks about today, but these centralized sequencers can capture a lot of MEV from the market and they don't need to be bootstrapped. Even today, 
uh, typical production grade sequencers captured, you know, tens to hundreds of million dollars per year. So that's a very profitable business to run a sequencer, even without any. MV is something that we are not able to see on the balance sheets, right? So that is that is a very profitable business. Now for the prover, the prover is the part which keeps the objective finality alive. You need only one correct prover in order to you know secure the chain, right? Because once the sequencer comes in and publishes a particular batch, it's set in stone, right? So either someone comes in and you know complete like completely accepts it, or you just you just rerun it to accept it that you know that it is correct. So for a prover, there needs to be incentive for someone to do it, just someone to do it. So as long as there is at least one person who does it, it can be altruistic, it can be incentivized, it can be coming directly from the users. Even there are better constructions right now, for example, that are not in production today, but I think in 2025, we will start seeing things like client-side proving, right? Where the clients themselves will prove transactions. And then the operator will just kind of, you know, aggregate proofs and such. So those kind of constructions we will keep on seeing. And those kind of, uh, where the value prop kind of changes, the value actual kind of changes, because users then are, are more self-sustaining in that manner. The operator has a very stateless kind of a role uh, in those kind of circumstances. But that's something that we will keep on seeing. Um, in terms of, again, shell sequences and such, not not trying to tell about them separately because, again, they, they capture a lot of MV and they can give out a big, big part of it back to the protocol and things like that. Um, in the end, the DNA is where the transaction costs come in, right? So... The, the DNA is where the batches get submitted, and that's why it has a it has a solid revenue stream that way as well. Um, so overall, right now what you see is extremely well delineated in terms of value. User pays a transaction fee to the operator. Operator either extracts more through the MEV or not. Typically, they don't today. At least that's how I like to believe it. Then take that and put it onto the DNA. For that, you have to pay a fee to the DNA. Uh, the DNA is where you derive part of your security from. So that's the kind of, you know, subsidy, like that's a commission that you have to give to inherit the security, so to say. There's a proven which can be incentivized directly from the user, parts of it, or through the operator, or can be altruistic, or can be a competition-based system where there's a definite reward based on what you are looking at. There's proof of efficiency, there, are, there is altruistic behaviors, there's other kind of, you know, typically a lot of research has gone on to that kind of system. And then they generate the re rewards. It can be like whoever does it first gets most of it, or it can be all the people who did it well can get pie of it. There are problems with either one of them, but there are solutions as well. So you see that the... All the pieces still now, when I've talked about, have a solid, you know, way to accrue value. There are other things which are yet to be kind of, you know, seen. For example, uh, there are separate services which run, let's say you are running an RPC. 
RPCs are incentivized from outside the protocol, right? So the users pay the RPCs for API requests and so on. Sometimes RPCs, they subsidize costs for others and so on. So even when you use MetaMask, you are in, using an inferior RPC, your cost is being subsidized. So those kind of models are also being seen. Um, there, are, there are other models which will be seen in the, in the coming future, which is that a service will actually subsidize the cost of user transactions. Uh, so as a sequencer, they will not take user fees. They will actually subsidize it themselves because you would want the first class web to like experience on web three. You wouldn't want a wallet. You don't need a wallet for, for you to actually, um, you know, sequence a set of transactions. So a lot of different types of uh, use cases are going to come up and we will keep on seeing how each one of them, you know, has a, a value actual. Even I am I'm also open and looking forward to sometimes an ad-based uh, Web3 front-end. Maybe that's also that to see. Yeah. Yeah, a couple of things. First, say goodbye to those often there's OP retroactive grants from sequencer fee boys because those are being subsidized back to the users. So enjoy those while they last. Um, the other thing is just to confirm when you say the transaction goes from the user pays the fee to the operator, you're referring to the operator as like the execution layer, right? The uh, the execution environment like that. So whatever VM that is. So that's where you start and it kind of trickles down all the way into the whole stack. So realistically in the modular chains, it's, it's every part uh, accrues value. It just depends on like, you know, the sequencer could theoretically accrue more than the rest. They do take a ton of MEV. But again, if, they, if they're subsidizing transactions, then, then there goes a lot of that kind of uh, revenue or profit uh, margin. So basically what, what you're saying is as long as we had users click, clicking buttons, each part of the, uh, each part of the stack is, is then at least generating revenue to, to which then uh, the expenses are obviously laid out on, on the balance sheet. And at the end of the day, we're likely, hopefully, in times of a lot of activity running highly profitable businesses on chain, which is super exciting. Um, my thought on the RPCs is, this might this might be a tough answer, but your RDA layer, you want to give the best experience for all users who use DA, uh, you know, avail-packed DA uh, layers on roll. So you want to, if you're working with uh, Gelato, Alt-Layer, Nanier, OP stack, whatever it is, you want to give those users the best experience. But there is now 50 rollups. There's soon 500 modules. Who's solving the RPC problem for all of these? Who's paying for that? And who in their right mind is indexing 500 rollups? Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely correct. And that is a problem that we think hard about. And that is why you will keep seeing our efforts in the coming days in order to solve that challenge. Um, now, to kind of give some some of the insights on how we are thinking about it. Again, these are not solved problems, but let me just try to give a few ideas uh, that we have been thinking and then you can also think about it. The first is that RPCs, right? So the one of the first and foremost things that we are trying to do right now is make our light clients the first class citizens of our network without relying on RPCs. Now, we want to have minimum reliance on RPCs. Our light clients, and that's the kind of work, the, the bulk of work we have done in the last two years is on the peer-to-peer -peer layer. Because, you know, 
creating a system or creating a blockchain is not the hard part. The hard part is creating a peer-to-peer -peer layer which is stable, which is which is you know dependable and rich which is performant as well. So what we are trying to do on the light client side is that we are creating a network of light clients, all of which contribute to the security and the availability of the network. So every time a light client samples, it not only samples and just checks it themselves, but also puts the samples out there onto the DHT so that the next guy coming in doesn't have to pull from it RPC. It can pull only from the peer-to-peer -peer layer. Even going one for one one step up, we are trying to populate the DHT with all the proofs needed so that RPC reliance goes to a bare minimum. Only the header fetches can be done from the RPC. In the future, we also have plans to mitigate that to, in order to the light client to only have the RPC as a backup. Like only when the entire peer-to-peer fails is when they go on to the RPC. So that is the kind of thing that we are trying to do on the DA layer. On the execution layer, you are absolutely correct that who in their right mind is like interacting with thousands of chains and still being able to, you know, keep track of RPCs. What is down, which chain is up, what is happening, or whether I have a soft confirmation, hard confirmation, what is what is there? And in those regards, what we are trying to create in in, in a way is we are we are not only looking to build just a DNA. Right? We are we are we are looking very hard at how we can create a very, you know, composable kind of ecosystem around it. DA will become the centerpiece because that is the that is the where where the security comes from. So DA is going to be our our main focus as we are seeing till now. But in this world, we want to make sure that the experience that the user has is that the, the chain remains only a smaller fraction of it. And how we are trying to do that is, for example, suppose you you interact with Amazon, right? And you it's not that Amazon has payment systems in the world. What Amazon does is that when you click the buy button, it sends a call to a payment aggregator. The payment aggregator doesn't have um, any of your credit card information actually. The payment aggregator sends that to someone like let's say Visa. Visa doesn't know your account balance. So Visa sends that call to someone like your bank. Your bank will then fulfill the request. It gives back a call to the to Visa. Visa gives back the payment aggregator, payment aggregator like Stripe, and then they they give it back to Amazon. As a user, you didn't interact with all of these chains, right? You didn't interact with all of these applications, to be honest, right? Of course, the URLs changed, but you didn't put those URLs. And just like that, we are trying to scaling this scaling this entire thing up using asynchronous message passing between rollups. And that is something that we already have a POC for. We are not just talking out of thin air. We are we are working every day to make this a reality, so that. As a user, you would only want to give what you want to do. And the rest of it will be chain to chain level interactions, which the user don't have to actually do, go and do. So for example, there might be a payment chain, there might be a separate NFT chain. And all of these are application specific in, in our worldview. 
What that means is when it's application specific, indexing becomes less of a challenge. Because what is indexing, right? You have a shared, you have a shared chain and you need application specific information. And that is when you have to index it. Because you don't want this entire thing to come to you. You want to filter it and take only parts of it which are relevant. Think of a world where the applications are only serving one, right? One app, the chains are serving only one application. Then that world, in that world, indexing is the lesser of a challenge. I'm not saying it will obliterate the need for indexers. It will, it will change the world how we see it. Not, not like that. It will happen delta by delta, right? But we are already working on on, on features like that, where you would want that, okay, if I want an NFT, I check out this chain. If I want uh, to know my account balance, my accounts remain on this chain. And then I can interact freely between them. And there can be three or four other chains which serve only one purpose, but you don't need to know it. You just need to know that I have this bank card and I want this product from Amazon. Everything else will be taken care of. And that's the kind of power for this roll-up centric ecosystem that we are trying to build. Asynchronous message passing, enter interop into the conversation. Like that that's where this comes in. And that's like the piece that we haven't talked about so much, but we had a, a great podcast yesterday with Hyperlane, uh, who's building permissionless interop in the roll-up space. Um, and it kind of opened our eyes to this RPC problem, but didn't have a a particularly great solution to it. I think the asynchronous message passing that you described uh, is a very clear, tangible visualization of how we can picture how these messages pass through and through. And we're just we we were out of space like not that long ago, and there was some conversation between uh, Hart Lambert from UMA and Susanna Evans from IBC talking about how right now value transfer is the only use case for message passing across chains. But what you're talking about isn't value transfer across chains, it's generic message passes. It, am I right? Could you kind of like just illuminate a little bit on whether or not the messages that are getting passed across rollups include any any value or is it simply the message that is getting passed? It's simply messages. Like it's simply messages and you can, you will be able to see more and I just don't want to paint picture in the air because I, I hate when people just uh, talk hypotheticals. But uh, but what it will look like is even you will only talk about intent. I intend to pay up to this much in order to get an asset, right? And then there will be a chain which will run a solver, which will do the solving. Then there will be another chain which will find the actual chain where the asset is in the minimal price or something like that. And then they can go to that chain, ask for that asset, and then they will realize that, oh, wait, I had, uh, the, the user had the funds in USDC, but the asset can be only bought here. So let's go to a swap chain where there is enough liquidity that I can get the best price and the most liquid. Let's go and convert it. Let's convert it, take it back, and then go to the asset chain, buy it, get the rest of it because that can be value can be changed. So change the rest of it back to USDC because the user already had that and then propagate that back. So it's all about messages at this point and promises and promises getting resolved because we have seen that in the web too, right? And of course we can sit here and criticize a lot of the web to design decisions, but 
there's a lot to learn from it. And one of the ways in which Web2 was able to scale was through this asynchronous message requests, right? And the promises and resolutions that you see today on all API calls. The, the, the entire Amazon to your, your band story, none of that was synchronous. None of that was done in a, in a way where there was a synchronous assumption, right? Every one of them were promises and then callbacks. So, or timeouts, right? So those kind of constructs we are trying to create, but the main difference being that this is going to be trust minimums. In Web2 world, all of these were trusted. Like every one of these calls were be becoming a call to a trusted entity. In, in our, sorry, in our case, the main delta, the main difference is that even if there is a transaction inclusion, you can give a proof of transaction inclusion. If there was no transaction inclusion, you can give a proof of non-inclusion. So all of these, the relationships are not about trust. It's about verifiability. And that's why verifiability is so close to our hearts. But none of this actually work when you do not have a single DNA layer. Because as soon as you cross DA boundaries, your security trade-offs actually change. Once you cross DA, your security zone, you have to cross it. And that's where you have to rely on someone else's cryptoeconomic security for you to cryptographically evaluate something. And that's what the kind of world you want to avoid. So we don't want to build, we don't want to call these bridges, right? But they are essentially there. They are some form of bridges, but with much lower security uh, assumptions, like trust assumptions. Yep. Yep. Sovereign interoperability. Something that you'll hear over the coming months. I, a little birdie told me about it. And um, we are uh, we are coming up on time here. And I think yet the most important question for you, my good friend, Tabal, starts with a W, sounds like Ben. And the question is, when mainnet, my friend? When? So as you, as NDU, of course, know that we are running our incentivized testnet. This is the final testnet that we are going to run before mainnet. Our mainnet plan is Q1 next year, which means it's just around the corner. Uh, we are doing final rounds of stress testing, different components, different challenges. Um, any of your listeners are free to join in. That is challenges for every kind of users. We are trying to accommodate as many validators, but there is also simple tasks like, you know, balance transfer, and there will be other tasks about light client, uh, running of light clients and so on. But essentially the target is just to understand if there are any vulnerability, anything that we have missed out, any last minute bug fixes and so on. The, the, the feedback that we have gotten till now, it has been awesome. Uh, and this is the last mine. And the last slide is always the toughest as well. So we are towards, we're very close towards mainnet. Key one is when we would launch our mainnet, barring anything significant that we come across on the incentivized testnet, of course. But that's the that's the overall plan. Beauty. Thank you, Prabal, for the time and for the uh, diving deep into the weeds, the modular weeds. It's always fun. Cheers, man. Thanks a lot for having me. Uh, it was great chatting. There were some topics which uh, were breath of fresh air because no one really talks about them. So thanks a lot. Uh, thank you for having me. 
thanks for listening to the DeFi by Design podcast. And a big thank you to all of our sponsors for their support. Please check them out in the links below, as well as on our website and in our newsletter. We'll be back with more exciting guests and insights. Until then, stay curious, stay informed, and keep designing the future of DeFi.